From the CPRI Knowledge Hub and CPRIHub.org, this is Research Minutes, a deep dive into new and important research in the realm of education. I'm Michelle Goodwin. Today, we're looking at students in the digital age and their ability to analyze and properly vet social and political information online. The internet has simply grown and changed so quickly that it's sort of outpaced our educational efforts to keep up with it. So students are trying, but they don't have the skills and strategies and dispositions that they need in order to effectively evaluate that content. We're speaking with Sarah McGrew, co-director of the Stanford History Education Group's Civic Online Reasoning Project and a doctoral candidate with Stanford University's Graduate School of Education. McGrew recently led a study of thousands of American students from middle school to college to assess their aptitude for civic online reasoning. The results weren't good. 80% of student responses that we scored were the lowest rubric level, and under 10% of college and high school students read laterally and successfully actually learned a little bit more about the sponsoring organization. McGrew sits down with CPRI research specialist Robert Nathanson to discuss her findings and offer tips and free resources to teachers, policymakers, and education researchers hoping to address this problem. The fact that we saw across the age range of middle school, high school, and college students, students really struggling to evaluate information, right? College students didn't get magically better at assessing information just because they were in college. Online reasoning isn't something that we simply acquire naturally, right, through years in school or with general sort of critical thinking training. Instead, I think it's a set of dispositions, strategies, and knowledge that need to be explicitly taught and learned. That's right now on Research Minutes. Good afternoon, Sarah. Thank you for joining us. Good afternoon. It's great to be here. Today, I'd like to discuss your study, Can Students Evaluate Online Sources? Learning from Assessments of Civic Online Reasoning, co-authored by Joel Breakstone, Teresa Ortega, Mark Smith, and Sam Weinberg. The study, which listeners can find in the journal Theory and Research in Social Education, sought to gauge students' ability to locate, assess, and verify the quality of online information particularly social and political information. In your study, you denote this competency as civic online reasoning. Can you explain what this term means and how it relates generally to digital literacy? So when we say civic online reasoning, we're referring to, as you said, the ability to effectively search for and evaluate social and political information online. And there's a few important parts of that description that I want to highlight. Uh, first, we're focused specifically on social and political information. So information that we might use to inform our choices and actions, and that ultimately might impact our communities, our country, our world. And that's why we call it civic online reasoning, because we want to call attention to the civic importance of being able to evaluate that social and political information. And as you said, there are a lot of terms out there in the sort of realm, including digital literacy, media literacy, and digital citizenship. And people ask why we created another one. And we did it because efforts like digital literacy tend to be a lot wider than what we're talking about. So digital literacy can include, for example, producing and communicating ideas online by making YouTube videos or teaching typing skills or coding. And we absolutely think that those things are important. But we want to be clear that what we're talking about in terms of civic online reasoning is a little narrower and and specifically focused on how we find and evaluate that social and political information. You call individuals who grow up accessing information online digital natives and contrast them with digital immigrants, adults who did not. What did the literature suggest about each group's digital ability? And why did you feel that this specific competency, civic online reasoning, was important to study? 
So when the terms digital native and digital immigrant were first used in the early 2000s, the researchers thought that young people who grew up accessing information online might learn and think in ways that were different than their parents and other so-called digital immigrants. So they might, for example, researchers thought be naturally somehow better at navigating online information. Other researchers since have thoroughly debunked that theory and shown really that young people need a lot of help learning how to evaluate and navigate online information. But I still think that the idea that young people must be better somehow than adults at navigating online information lives on in our popular discourse, particularly when we see young people, you know, nimbly using their phones and computers, texting and taking videos and moving from app to app really quickly. And it's easy to conflate their dexterity with those digital devices with some sort of skill or expertise at evaluating the information that those devices provide. And a lot of what we know about young people's skill, you know, the debunking of these theories of digital nativity are based on really in-depth studies using methods like think aloud and there weren't really good measures that directly assessed young people's abilities to evaluate online information. So we started to design those short assessments, mostly in order to, we hope, to create useful tools for teachers to use to get a sense of how their students could evaluate online information so they could see what their students already knew and could do as they evaluated digital content and sort of use that as a starting place for teaching. I find that really interesting that even though we live in a far more digital world, the skills to effectively evaluate content hasn't necessarily increased across generations. So given the nature of this problem, how did you create a study to examine civic online reasoning? So this study is based on student responses to those short assessments of civic online reasoning that we began developing about four years ago. Our assessments show students actual online content. In some assessments, that are paper and pencil. We show students just the top of an article or a conversation on Facebook that's sort of reproduced on paper. Other assessments direct students to evaluate websites or ask them to do open web searches and then to answer a question or two about what they found. Thousands of students in a diverse array of public and private schools in 12 U.S. states completed versions of those assessments as we piloted and revised them. And then once we were confident based on those rounds of piloting that the assessments tap the constructs that we intended them to, we administered the final versions to a larger group of students. And this study is based on that final administration of 15 of these tasks with middle school, high school, and college students. I wanted to get into how you tackled civic online reasoning. And within it, you identify three primary constructs. Who is behind the information? What is the evidence? And what do other sources say? I'd like to discuss each, beginning with who is behind the information. What does that mean? And what did you learn about students' ability to determine who or what was sponsoring their content? Sure. So the competency of who's behind the information is really looking for students to prioritize asking that question because we know that information is often influenced by the person who created it or the organization who created it and the circumstances in which it's created. It's really important to have an understanding of who that person is, what their perspective is, how much authority they have on whatever the topic is. But we learned in piloting and administering these tasks that students often completely skip over evaluating the person or organization that's sponsoring a website or a post. So for example, in one of the tasks that we gave to high school students, we showed students portions of two articles about climate change that were both from the Atlantic. One was a traditional news story from the science section with a, you know, an author byline, and the other was a sponsored post and advertisement by Shell. And we asked students simply which of these articles is more reliable as a source of information about climate change. And over 70% of high school students 
said the article sponsored by Shell was more reliable for reasons that had to do with sort of the content and appearance of the post. So these students ignored the contrasting sources and instead reasoned about the contents or the appearance of the articles. And we saw that in, in similar tasks as well, students sort of ignoring or skipping over the source and going to an evaluation of the content. And you had said that sometimes students use heuristics or shorthands to evaluate sources, in which some sources which had more data or visually appealing graphics seem to engender greater confidence in the students in the validity of the content, regardless of who had actually sponsored it. Yeah, absolutely. So in the case of the article that was sponsored by Shell, there was sort of a, a pie chart that was predicting future energy uses. It really was a graphic. It was not based on any real data, as far as I can tell. But students interpreted that as conferring reliability on the post and again, completely skipped over thinking about the difference in sources. In the second construct, for what is the evidence, you sought to understand students' ability to determine evidence's trustworthiness and sufficiency to support a claim. What questions did you use to gauge this specific competency? So when we ask what's the evidence, we want students really to reason about two big questions. The first is, is this evidence coming from a reliable source? And then second, is it actually relevant to or does it directly support whatever the claims that are being made? Really, is there a there there with the evidence? However, we found that students often struggled to raise those questions and that they were often convinced by sort of the appearance of evidence. So if evidence looked authoritative or it looked like there was a lot of evidence, often a lot of numbers, students were, were persuaded by that. And another kind of evidence that students found particularly compelling was visual evidence, so photographs or video. For example, in a task that we gave to high school students, we showed students a post from Imager, the photo sharing website, posted by a random user. It's titled Fukushima Nuclear Flowers, and it shows a picture of daisies growing in an unusual fashion with the caption, not much more to say, this is what happens when flowers get nuclear birth defects. We ask students if this is strong evidence about conditions near the Fukushima Daiichi power plant after the, the power plant disaster. So there are questions about the reliability of the evidence and about its relevance to the claim, right? The, we have no idea who posted this photo. We don't know whether we can trust them. We have no idea if the picture was taken anywhere near the power plant. And even if it were, we have no way of knowing that the nuclear radiation from the power plant caused the daisies unusual growth. But just, just about 18% of high school students raised one or more of those relevant concerns about the photo. And about 75% of students thought the picture was strong evidence. Most of those students argued simply that because you could see the flowers unusual growth, that was proof of the radiation, right? Seeing is believing. I can see that the flowers look strange. The poster must be right. And we see that even more strongly potentially with video evidence where students are like, yeah, I can, I can see it in the video, it's happening. It must be true, whatever the person says. Those are things that spread with particular furor online. <laughs> I think it's really important to teach students to, to be more critical when they encounter that visual evidence. I'd like to talk about the third and final competency, which you describe as what do other sources say, which gauge students' ability to investigate the validity of online content by seeking outside information about the creators of the content. How did students perform on this construct? One of the strengths of the internet can be the amount of information it provides, right? If we're not sure about a claim or if we're unfamiliar with a source, we should leave the website in order to see what other sites say about it. 
In another study that Sam Weinberg and I designed to better understand what skilled online evaluations look like, we saw professional fact checkers almost immediately leave unfamiliar websites, open new tabs, and search for information about the website outside the site itself. Only once they learned more about the website from other sources did they return to that original source. And we called what fact checkers did lateral reading because they left sites open new tabs on that horizontal axis of the browser and search for information outside the site as a route to evaluating it. But in our assessments, we rarely saw evidence of high school and college students leaving websites and reading laterally in order to investigate claims or sources. Instead, the students engaged in what we call vertical reading. <laughs> they started at the top of a website or a post and they read down like you'd read a print source and they evaluated the site based on clues within the page. So one of the websites that we asked high school and college students to evaluate in the study was an article hosted on the website minimumwage.com that argues that raising the minimum wage would result in higher food prices and fewer job opportunities. So pretty vehemently against raising the minimum wage. Minimumwage.com and its parent website, which is called the Employment Policies Institute, both have really well-designed clean websites. The Employment Policies Institute is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that sponsors research at universities. But if you leave the site if you read laterally and search for information about the Employment Policies Institute. You'll learn that it's run by a public relations firm that works on behalf of the restaurant industry, among others. Clearly an industry with an opinion about whether we should raise the minimum wage, right, and a potential conflict of interest that you'd want to take into account in evaluating that site. But that information isn't available anywhere on minimumwage.com or the Employment Policies Institute. So to successfully complete the task, students needed to combine a couple of the core competencies. They needed to prioritize asking who's behind the information, and then they needed to leave the website to see what other sources had to say about minimumwage.com and its parent organization. But very few, again, high school and college students did that. 80% of student responses that we scored were the lowest rubric level. And for the most part, those students stayed on the website and made evaluations based on the contents of the article. You know, it's on topic about the minimum wage. They commented on the fact that it linked to other reliable sources, including a New York Times article. They judged it based on its appearance or on the sort of neutral description that it provided of itself on its about page. And, and under 10% of college and high school students read laterally and success successfully actually learned a little bit more about the sponsoring organization and their ties to the restaurant industry. I found that really interesting, particularly, again, the different heuristics that individuals are using to assess reliability of a site, and often they're using the wrong benchmarks to do so. We saw students make judgments of reliability based on how usable they perceived information to be. So particularly in tasks where we were asking students to compare websites or to select from multiple websites, they often made selections based on which provided more information on the topic that we'd asked them about or which they thought was more accessible or easier to understand. In those cases, you know, relevance was sort of a substitute for reliability. And of course, it's important for students to, to find and, and use information that they can understand and that's relevant to what they're looking for. But I would argue that that's a separate consideration <laughs> from whether they information is reliable. So given all that you've found, what would you say are the major takeaways from your study? And what future research might you have planned in the area? I think that the clear takeaway for us is that students need more support learning to reason about online information. 
And I think that schools, as part of their sort of civic missions, need to provide that support. But I want to be really clear that I'm not blaming students for struggling. I think in a lot of ways, the internet has simply grown and changed so quickly that it's sort of outpaced our educational efforts to keep up with it. Students tried to evaluate information. As part of our assessment development process, we did think alouds with middle school, high school, and college students where we sat down, asked them to, to complete the assessment, and then to tell us about their thinking. And students engaged in really complex explanations, really thorough explanations of, of the reasoning and the conclusions that they drew. And yet they were often relatively unfounded. So students are trying, but they don't have the skills and strategies and dispositions that they need in order to effectively evaluate that content. So most of my efforts right now are in developing and testing curriculum to teach students civic online reasoning. And those lessons are built around the core competencies. So we're trying to, to help students develop sort of the dispositions to ask those questions of who's behind the information, what's the evidence and what other sources say, and then teaching some specific strategies like lateral reading to help students investigate those questions. And then also along the way, we realized that knowledge plays a really big part in all of this, right? Knowledge of sources, knowledge of political issues sometimes, and that those things need to be explicitly developed along the way. We're also considering what teacher education looks like for both pre and in-service teachers. Our study looked specifically at how students performed, but we know that adults also need support. So we need teacher education that helps teachers themselves learn those strategies for evaluating online information and also helps them develop approaches to teaching their students how to do the same thing. Yeah, it's fascinating and very important work, particularly these days. One thing that I really liked about your study is that it covers a vital topic as we increasingly use digital mediums to review information and news and to also engage socially. It's also quite topical particularly with ongoing disinformation attempts and the widespread use of the fake news label. What are the implications of your results within this context? I think the, the case has sort of been made for us in the last couple of years, for better or worse, that the information we see online can affect how we view an issue or can change a decision that we make. And that's whether we're searching for information on a ballot initiative, as I was just before the last election, or simply scrolling through our Facebook feed and seeing political or social posts from our family and friends. When people struggle to evaluate that online content, they risk trusting dubious information and making potentially decisions or taking action based on it. And because we live in a democratic society, our fellow citizens' online reasoning can affect to all of us. So our ability to find reliable information can really strengthen our society, right, as the internet offers access to a wider variety of sources and allows us to sort of connect across time and space. But if we're unable to distinguish truth from falsehood, then it can, I think, weaken over time the quality of our decisions and our, our ability to advocate for our own interests. I think our study also shows that Patently, fake news is only a, a small part of a larger landscape of online mis- and disinformation, right? The, the conversation has been dominated by this fake news term, but we want people to be able to evaluate information far beyond just fake news. The, the website on the on minimumwage.com, for example, is not fake news, right? It's a, it's a real website, it's real content, but we want people to understand where that information is coming from, whose interests it potentially represents. And so, you suggest several potential pathways towards improving civic online reasoning and digital literacy more generally. How might teachers or other practitioners facilitate the development of this competency? How could policymakers support this work? 
The first thing I would say is that civic online reasoning and those core competencies that we've talked about need to be explicitly taught. Right. And that's based on a couple of things. First, the, the fact that we saw across the age range of middle school, high school and college students, students really struggling to evaluate information. Right. College students didn't get magically better at assessing information just because they were in college. And in the study on skilled evaluations that where Sam and I studied fact checkers approaches to searching and evaluating, we also included a group of university based historians. So re really talented adults with PhDs. And yet they often actually engaged in online evaluations that looked a lot closer to students than to fact checkers. And I don't say that to disparage historians in any way, but instead to suggest that they're smart adults like the rest of us. And online reasoning isn't something that we simply acquire naturally, right, through years in school or with general sort of critical thinking training. Instead, I think it's a set of dispositions, strategies, and knowledge that need to be explicitly taught and learned. And I also think that online reasoning needs to be taught in and ideally across the school subject areas. Sometimes digital literacy or online reasoning are taught as special after school programs or in specific subjects like a journalism class. And that's fabulous. But in order to ensure that all students have equitable access to online reasoning training, we need to bring it into the core subject matter classes. As a small start, we've made the assessments that we used in the study, along with several more available on the Stanford History Education Group website, which is sheg.stanford.edu. So all those assessments are up there free to download. There's explanations of the task along with rubrics and sample student responses at all the rubric levels. So those are a pretty easy to use tool, we hope. Teachers want to sort of take on teaching online reasoning. And I'm not a policy expert, but I think the curriculum development and teacher education that's necessary to equitably bring civic online reasoning into classrooms is going to take obviously time and resources. And I think to the extent that policymakers can support that work, we'll all be better off. Well, Sarah, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. I'm very excited to see what comes next with this. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It was wonderful to be here. Thanks for listening to Research Minutes presented by the CPRI Knowledge Hub. For more episodes or to subscribe to the series, visit us at cprehub.org. That's C-P-E-R-E-Hub.org. To share your thoughts on today's episode or suggest future topics, follow us on Twitter at CPRI Hub. We look forward to you joining the conversation.